0: Oh, okay.
1: oh. you're listening listening to hold that thought from arts
0: and sciences at washington university in st louis thanks for listening to hold that thought i'm claire navarro this week we're continuing our series where's my jet pack a collaboration with the graduate student group prosper on why scientific innovation can take so long for today's episode, graduate student Lamis Eldesuki wanted to find out more about how barriers between the social sciences, like psychology, and the life and physical sciences, like physics or chemistry, affect innovation. As a graduate student in psychology, Eldesuki has noticed how many people seem to believe that these types of disciplines are in competition with one another, or that some types of science are more worthy of recognition or funding than others. To find out more, Eldesuki interviewed Professor Sarah Gellert, the E. Desmond Lee Professor of Racial and Ethnic Diversity at the Brown School of Social Work and the School of Medicine here at WashU. Gellert is also a scholar at WashU's Institute of Public Health. So I'm Lamise, and I'm a
2: second year graduate student in the psychology department. In my particular area of research is social and personality psychology, and I'm really interested in looking at the overlap between the social sciences and the life and physical sciences and seeing how they can basically influence innovation and research funding, and so I was really interested in contacting Dr. Gellert because her work is pretty cross-disciplinary, and I was curious to see what she has to say about this topic and how the social sciences in particular could contribute to innovation relative to life and physical sciences.
1: So I'm Sarah Gellert, and I'm the E. Desmond Lee professor, and my area is gene-environment interactions, so uh, mostly in cancer. And I came to this before I came to Washington University, um, when I was at the University of Chicago. And we um, obtained funding from the National Cancer Institute and the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, which is two very different parts of the National Institutes of Health, to try to understand disparities by bringing together a team of basic scientists and social scientists and behavioral scientists. And um, I, at first, balked at the idea and wondered why they wanted me to be principal investigator. But then I really began to understand how it allows us, by working together, to answer questions that have previously not been answered.
2: Uh, Do you think that there was a particular area of that research that seemed to
1: carry more importance um, to your source of funding? No, I think actually the beauty of it was that none carried more weight. They were trying to move beyond the usual way of doing things in which the basic scientists really held sway, and everybody else was sort of working to help understand their work. So when I first started doing this kind of research, probably in the 1970s, you'd get these grants that involved a lot of disciplines, and, but everybody would still do their own project, And you'd go work, you know, I'd go work in neighborhoods, people would go to the lab, and then you'd come back at the end and you'd try to make the results fit together and they didn't. And we've made very little progress in understanding things like how or why people with the same genetic background have very different health outcomes. So, in this particular approach, We wanted to know how the social environment predisposes African-American women to higher rates of mortality from breast cancer. And the nice thing is that everybody, the basic scientists too, also were clinicians. And they knew that even with the best treatment for breast cancer, there'd still be differences because they didn't know why, but they could tell that the social environment had something to do with it and so we came up with a, an approach a model going from the social environment to genes that involved all of us and that's actually what did it you if you are part of you're answering the same question you kind of realize that you're dependent on the others so even even the chair of surgical pathology who's involved when i would talk about neighborhoods, he would sort of be on the edge of his seat. And I thought, what a polite man. He's so polite. You know, he's just being very nice to me. And finally, I asked him, and he said, no, Sarah, it's not that. It's that for 30 years, I've looked at women with breast cancer through their cells, through a microscope, and I wondered almost every day what the rest of their lives were like. So that sort of brought people together. And I think if you can find a shared question and figure out how each person, each discipline can make the other look better and help them answer the questions that are driving them, that's what brings down some of the barriers.
2: So given that different members of your team took different approaches, where, for instance, you mentioned some would go to the lab and others would go to communities, what was, I guess, the result of that? So was the goal of people who went to the lab to create some kind of product, some kind of vaccine, medication, whereas uh, people who went to the communities, for instance, were just collecting really important
1: information? In the past, But in this particular project, we were trying to understand how living in impoverished neighborhoods gets under the skin, so to speak, to uh, predispose lower socioeconomic status, and in our case, African-American women on the south side of Chicago, to a more aggressive form of breast cancer that has half the survival. So in that approach, we needed all of us. So when women were given the diagnosis of breast cancer, one person went to the surgery suite and took some of the tissue that wasn't being used And um, we immediately went into the home and started interviewing those women because we wanted to see what in their lives, we wanted to understand enough about their lives to see um, what social phenomena affected their psychological functioning and got under the skin to change biology.
2: So do you think that perhaps, at least within the scope of this project, that taking a social
1: sciences approach was
2: allowing you to understand the mechanisms by which some of these things were going on?
1: Yeah. Had the social science approach not been there, we never would have understood the mechanism. We just presented um, together at the American Psychosomatic Society some of these results. And I can't say it was always easy because I'm probably making it seem like much rosier than it was. Sometimes it wasn't pretty at all. And as a principal investigator, I finally figured out that I had to keep pulling it back to the bigger picture. People would regress to fighting over resources or saying, you know, privileging the biological over the social. So it was kind of a struggle. And there were all sorts of things like different tenure structures and different ways of presenting at meetings, things we never really even thought about. There were like layers of differences that we kept, kept encountering.
2: Speaking of limited resources, so earlier last year, the National Science Foundation had cut back funding on programs in the social and economic sciences. And there was a statement by the director of the NSF um, in which he thought that money would be better spent on medical research. And so similar views are also held by a lot of other people in the government and even in the general public. So given that there are these different perceptions as well as limitations on funding and resources, How do you think that researchers, especially within the social sciences, should go about this?
1: Well, you know, I think being labeled a science has always had some power associated with it. It certainly is if you're more scientific, you're more worthy of funding. And that's certainly been the case with NSF. Um, And I think it's an enormous mistake because we haven't done as well as we'd like in improving human lives with that approach. I don't think anyone could argue it. I mean, it, part of it's never going to change, you know, people who just keep their ears closed. But dialogues usually, understanding one another's science helps. How we can foster that, I don't know. But it certainly is more challenging to get funding, especially from some of the institutes and centers at the National Institutes of Health, which I know better than the National Science Foundation, than, than others. Some are more forward thinking.
2: So do you think that one of the best ways to go
1: about this is
2: to be collaborating um, with people in different
1: I disciplines? Think you have to. The phenomena that we're interested in, especially I'm interested you know, cancer disparities, um, really are very complex. And we're just realizing absolutely how complex they are, that they're multi-level influences. And you can't just pull one level out and examine it. So I see that influencing science and making people, if not look toward social scientists, basic scientists not look toward social scientists, at least looking toward social variables. So um, it might be that they realize that you can't just um, sort of pick 12 factors that you think you need to sort of extract from the medical record and assume that you've captured the life experiences or the context of, of people. I think probably that will be the case because I'm firmly convinced one cannot. Um, but we also, you know, when when they asked me to be principal investigator of this center, I thought, oh, no, I mean, I can't do this. I'm just, you know, a social scientist. And it was interesting that they saw my worth more than I did in some sense. I mean, they really didn't understand. They kept calling me a sociologist when I wasn't, but they did. Actually, what I had to realize that um, working with community members or understanding community or interviewing people, to some basic scientists was kind of rocket science, for, for lack of a better term. And I thought what they were doing was much more, I don't know, weighty. So it took me a long time to sort of realize my own worth and when when we used, when I used to have to present what the whole center was doing uh, at NIH, I would be in front of the mirror in the hotel, like pronouncing the words. And finally, I got past that. What was important was that everybody could tell the shared story and then go into depth in what they did. I I do see it as changing not fast enough, by any means, not fast enough. What
2: do you think might be causing some of that resistance? Do you think it's that? A lot of the variables that social scientists are studying are just more difficult to see and more difficult to understand, That's
1: certainly part of it. So you know, sort of measuring length, measuring temperature is a lot more precise and objective than measuring things like aggression or love. It's true. But, Um, There are many, many things. I I serve on the Board of Scientific Counselors at the National Human Genome Research Institute at NIH. It was an advisory group, and I'm the social scientist. Um, We're realizing that there's not quite as much precision in genetics and genomics as as we think, especially when you bring it into genomics from genetics. So that's a myth that needs to be shattered
2: so do you think that perhaps um, that people who are in the social sciences should be trying to emulate people who are in the life and physical sciences to get that level of
1: precision? I don't think you change your core values and your core methods to get that precision. We always need to be—everyone needs to be more precise. But to change what's important and not measure, to, to measure something that's more can be measured more objectively instead of something that you know is important— that's um, maybe a little less objective would be a huge mistake.
2: I, I was coming from this, I mean, or I was coming to this by thinking about how when you're in a field that does technology, for instance, you end up with like a technological product and so people mm-hmm. are convinced of its value. But a lot of the times in my research, I don't get a direct product. I just I keep publishing in papers and people yeah, will yeah. use my information to do their own form of innovation. But seeing that direct result is, I think, kind of difficult sometimes in the social sciences. But
1: it's a different phenomenon, I think. Innovation might not be... It's sort of like basic science is tangible. Mm -hmm. Biological science and social science isn't. So maybe the innovations are more tangible, and they've, they've shaped how we define what an innovation is. But I think now a big issue is, now that we know that the social environment shapes you know, the genome, how do you measure social environmental variables? So I think one way that social scientists can be innovative is to help figure out how to do this without reducing it. You know, what you mentioned earlier about making it sort of recreating ourselves in the image of a biological scientist, which we don't want to do, but helping to come up with products or maybe tools for how to measure social variables and um, you know getting at what instruments might work with what groups with whom uh, a scientist is working that's very very important I did a project on premenstrual dysphoric disorder which was very controversial diagnosis Um, and I don't think of myself as a social scientist as having products but I was approached by a venture capitalist who wanted to use the survey I did because he wanted to adapt it so the physicians could use it to make the diagnosis more precisely. And I had to sort of change my thinking about myself as an innovator in that sense. So I think of what we do primarily is innovation in terms of ideas. And um, ideas maybe are not considered products because the way we've talked about innovation is more from from business and products and things you can touch so perhaps trying to reshape just what we mean by innovation I'm bringing that up because um,
2: I've read in a lot of psychology papers that at least, Within psychology uh, there are a lot of people who try to become more scientific and the best way to become more scientific and to be on the equal the same equal footing as life in physical science is to become more quantitative and become more precise and uh, it seems like some of the value of
1: social sciences is kind of lost in that endeavor some of it is just lack of understanding so I was invited to an advisory panel at National Institutes of Health and 2005, 2006, and it was to bring together um, social scientists and geneticists to try to get at how to understand how the environment shapes genes. And um, a high-ranking person from NIH said, you know, if only we could measure these social variables with the same precision we can measure um, the, the more basic science we'd really have it made. I mean, all we've really got, he said, was socioeconomic status. You know, that's all we've got in our, our shelf. And uh, another person on the panel, who is an anthropologist and a genetic- human geneticist, said, oh, wait a minute, I'm kind of in between these two, and I have to say, when I look one direction and look at the other, I don't see a great deal more precision in one than the other, that some of that is 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 a myth. So... Um, I think we in the social sciences have to be careful not just to complain but to really try to let people know what we do and why it's important and how it can help. And there are always going to be people who are hard to convince who are holding on to their territory, you know, and those I think we just have to sort of move around.
2: Uh, So given that we can't exactly convince everyone, though, how do you think um, people might go around you know, that that war that tends to be brought up between social sciences and life and physical sciences. So for instance, there have been a lot of pieces lately that have been published in major news outlets like the New York Times, the LA Times, and the Huffington Post. And like, they're not just opinion pieces, but they're written by people who actually do research in those mm-hmm. fields, and yet they still hold
1: those perceptions. As I said, I do think it's changing, and I think it tends to not be younger scientists to do that in my, in my humble experience. So I think we just need to write back. You know, we need to write our own pieces. And also, I think um, one thing I've learned is that trying to... There are emerging journals that really want work that is a little more expansive, that tries to capture this complexity in science. And I think um, not tunneling into our own disciplinary journals entirely, but trying to, to publish more broadly and show... The precision with which we're able to work is important. I don't, I'm usually not the world's biggest optimist. I know I sound like it now, but maybe I just need to believe this. Because I I work in health disparities. I am firmly convinced that we have to work together to understand disparities, the roots of disparities, from cells to society. One alone isn't going to do it. An example is um, that we talk about access to care, and we certainly know that access to care is important, but through work that we did earlier and with colleagues at other institutions, we found that actually in terms of mammography screening, access wasn't as much an issue in um, less affluent areas, neighborhoods of Chicago, but the quality of the mammography was poor. So, we had looked at how ancestry can really uh, predispose women to an earlier form of breast cancer that's more lethal, the basal form, basal type of breast cancer. And it occurred to me that when you put these two levels together, you're really at a better understanding because if women are predisposed to an earlier form of breast cancer that's more aggressive and they live in neighborhoods where there's poor mammography. That's like a perfect storm. And if you'd looked at one or the other, you wouldn't understand the picture completely, nor would you be able to come up with solutions.
2: Uh, as a, So I'm getting the sense that it, one of the best ways to basically approach, approach these issues is to be working with people um, from multiple disciplines. And as a graduate student, how would you recommend that I go about doing that, given that I'm still trying to figure out my own niche? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and i in particular have limited resources. So. That's a
1: very good question. So, um we 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 have a training program in prevention sciences, a postdoctoral training program just as an example, and this is an ideal. I think it's not you don't see it everywhere, but we bring people who trained in very different disciplines, so from economics, to rural sociology, to reproductive biology um, into the same program, and they train together. And we do things, so certainly they've trained in their own disciplines, right? You've got to know your own discipline well. But they come together for a journal club, and we say, we take a topic like stress, and we say, bring in what you think is the best empirical article on stress from your discipline. And then we put them all on the table and say, well, if this is stress, from your discipline, and this is stress. What's stress? And it causes them to think more broadly. So if there's a way of getting at those opportunities, and I know that administration at WashU talks about getting bridging disciplines, that's a good way of doing it. Just stay in your root discipline, but try to seek out experiences for the research questions that are driving you there may be other people on campus in other disciplines
2: who are just perhaps
1: studying it in a different way. Yeah. From a slightly different perspective. Thank you for that advice.
0: Many thanks to Sarah Gellert and Lamise Eldasuki for joining Hold That Thought. For many more ideas to explore, including more from Hold That Thought's collaboration with Prosper, please visit holdthatthought.wustl.edu. You can also find Hold That Thought on Facebook and Twitter.